listening to Oh My God, I'm a Therapist, the podcast for the therapy curious with your host, Dr. Janice Murphy Rising. As a reminder, the ideas on this podcast are mine and mine alone and not meant to represent all of the therapeutic profession. It's for educational purposes only, and it's not a substitute for medical advice or individualized mental health care. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Oh My God, I'm a Therapist with me, Dr. Janice Murphy Rising, a therapist. Today, I'm going to talk about theories. I teach at Seattle University, and I've taught in graduate schools for going on 13 years. Wow, that's a long time. And I've had the privilege over the years at different places to teach theory, mostly to graduate students in counseling programs. And what I notice in these classes that is a consistent theme is that there's a lot of anxiety among students about what theory they pick. And what I like to tell students, which hopefully they hear by the end of the quarter, not always because sometimes their anxiety is so high and they feel like they need to pick something, but they don't quite hear it. But what I hope that they integrate is that You actually don't have to pick a theory while you're in grad school. The first thing to do is to learn the theories. As a client, I always think it's a good idea when you're looking for a new therapist to ask them what their theoretical approach is. And I think a good counseling website will tell you what their approach is. And in an email exchange or phone call, they should be able to tell you pretty quickly what their theory is. What makes me sad as somebody that's worked as a licensed counselor for almost two decades is when I hear somebody in the profession say, I don't use a theory, almost like they don't believe in it. And that's hard for me because I feel like we do so much more than just get paid to listen. And part of that is exploring our own values, recognizing that we have our own philosophy of life. And usually because there are so many different counseling theories out there, we can usually find a theory that really ties into that, that helps us have a foundation for how we work with people and also helps us explore and be present with our biases, which always helps build the relationship with the client. I think the other reason why people often abandon theories, well, there's a couple of reasons, but one is that What the research shows is that it is not necessarily the theory, but it's the relationship between the therapist and the client that really has the most lasting impact for change. This was looked at in a study called the Match Project, where researchers over several years did manualized group treatment, looking at cognitive behavioral therapy, motivational interviewing, and the 12 steps from a clinical perspective. And so all of these were very specific ways of delivering services. I think they had ideas that one would prevail over another. And there were some studies that said, yes, motivational interviewing seems to be the most effective. But what they were surprised to learn is that the participants, when describing their experience, said what was most helpful was the way that the facilitators or counselors worked with them. So how they listened, how they showed up with their body language and with validating what they were experiencing. So I think that's why sometimes counselors in our field decide, oh, I don't have a theory because micro skills and relational work can be so supportive and can be a really big part of what helps people grow. 
But I think it's important not to just abandon theories once you learn them. I think it's important to find theories and find what inspires you and find things that are ideas that can help you support some of your own inclinations and ideas about philosophies. A lot of people that come to counseling programs are doing this as a second career or they themselves have been counselors um, or they've gone to counseling or they've had some other support system, maybe their parents or they've worked in some other capacity with people. And so they already do have a lot of life skills and skill set that make them say, yeah, this is something that works for me. And so it's not so much about starting with raw material and building yourself into a counselor from clay, but it is about putting together and finding those things. And that is always what I find really exciting when I work with students, that being able to put together, yeah, I'm someone that's more interested in cognitive behavioral therapy because I like how these things show up very consistently. Um, I think people that like cognitive behavioral therapy like point A to point B, and and um, especially if they're really relational, it can be really helpful for lots of different things. And what I tell students is that it's useful to have tools from all theories in your tool bag, but you will probably find that you gravitate towards one theory more than another. There was a study done where there were over 1,400 human services, service professionals interviewed. Um, they looked at clinical psychologists, counseling psychologists, psychiatrists, social workers, and my field counseling. And what they found overwhelmingly is that the theory of choice that most people described was called integrative. And what integrative means is two, sometimes three different theories that people use together as a foundation for the work that they do with people. I would say that this is definitely my theory. When I started out, dialectical behavior therapy was really popular. I found it really exciting and interesting because it incorporated mindfulness. And when I started out as a counselor, I was also a yoga teacher, and I really wanted to know how to incorporate yoga into counseling. And DBT seemed like a evidence-based way to do that. I think DBT, even though it was formulated for people that have borderline personality disorder, I learned it while working with adolescents that were going through substance use treatment. And I would say having led groups of adolescents through DBT that I was very surprised to learn that these were skills that I needed. Um, I think everybody can use these skills. Um, some of the first skills that you learn in DBT is called getting a hold of your mind. And so you learn that your mind is comprised of a rational part, an emotional part, and a wise part. And that really spoke to me. And it was a really easy thing for me to visualize, especially when I was feeling dysregulated. And I think you always learn something better when you teach it. So DBT became something that I used because I got training in it and I was working with that with adolescents. And it's something that I think when adolescents really take to it or anybody really takes to it, they really benefit from it. And there's lots of different research from Marshall Linehan's uh, group. And then there's lots of other researchers that do just specifically DBT. But I didn't find that I was just drawn to DBT. I was also drawn to motivational interviewing. Motivational interviewing was developed by William Miller and Stephen Rolnick. And what William Miller said when I took a class with him was that he thought he would write an article in the 80s and that would be it. The article he wrote was he was working with people with substance use and he heard clinicians talking about how they had these very resistant clients. And he thought, gosh, I'm not having that experience. I think I need to write up what it is that I'm doing. 
And from what I can assess, it looks like his theory is based entirely on cognitive behavioral therapy and person-centered. One of the drawbacks that a lot of people talk about with person-centered therapy, which if that's new information to you, Carl Rogers is the main person that developed person-centered theory. And a lot of people look at his work and say, well, I'm not Carl Rogers. It was a lot of him. It was a lot of him bringing his genuineness, his openness, his presence, his empathy, his unconditional positive regard. And so a criticism of person-centered is often, well, it's just not direct enough. And where motivational interviewing shifts things or is a next iteration of both of these theories, cognitive behavioral therapy and MI, is that it is very direct. And so Again, like DBT, it was very easy to learn. I felt like it was really easy to apply. The research shows that even a couple of sessions of MI taught to counseling students um, can increase their capacity to do MI, and it also can increase the motivation for people to elicit change within themselves, which is the goal of MI, is that they the person figures out change and is guided by the counselor to find that change within themselves. And then the counselor uses that language to support that. It's a really beautiful theory, I think. I use these two theories. And over time, I found that there was something else really driving me because I had worked for a long time with adolescents, with adults with substance use disorders, with people with eating disorders. And I really liked this part language that was first introduced to me and I saw that as sort of what the wise mind was about. And I remembered back to some of my first experiences out of college. I was working at a center for children, and I had somebody pull me aside and talk about transactional analysis. And transactional analysis is this idea that we all have a child part of ourself, an adult part of ourself, and a parent part of ourself. And so if you imagine six circles, the top two are for parents, the middle two are for adults, and the bottom two are for child, the transactional analysis is analyzing when you're having communication with somebody, if you're communicating from an adult to adult space, which I think is what we assume or strive for, but that's not always how we communicate. The appropriate communication between a parent and child is to go from that child circle to the parent circle, for example. You know, if I, as an adult parent, my students, they tend to not like that. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's infantilizing to them. And they might say things like, you're treating me like a child, and it might put them in that child space. I work really hard not to do this with anybody, but these things actually happen unconsciously really quickly in our relationships, and we don't even realize it. I see professionals in my field do this to each other all the time. Basically, if you're trying to control someone, you're parenting somebody. So you got that going for you. And so that actually got me diving into the literature about what are the more modern approaches to transactional analysis. And I realized, oh, a lot of these parts language, a lot of these ideas that the experiences I have currently are based on something that happened to me earlier in childhood. And I'm someone that is pretty skeptical And I actually thought for a long time, having been educated during the time when false memory syndromes were warned against, um, people can actually make up false memories in counseling. And so it is really important that we as counselors are mindful of, first of all, just not not imposing or projecting or, or making up stories for clients to latch onto. So that's one way to protect from them. But one of my strategies for that was just not to talk to people about their childhoods, to just try to stay in present moment with people. But I found over time that it came up. And I found when I started reading The Developing Mind by Daniel Siegel that people's memories are strongest, especially up until 
the brain completely develops. So I would say up until 18. And when I've sat with people and myself in therapy, I've noticed that those are the memories that stick with us. Those are the memories that come to mind when we're in a unregulated moment. And sometimes when we're just reminiscing and we have unregulated moments, those are, those are things that we, materials that we can use in a counseling session. And when they're regulated, um, they're actually resources for us. So all of this to say, I started building a philosophy of, oh, I can really see how people's earliest childhood experiences, their attachment to their early caregivers. I always really liked John Bowlby's work and attachment really spoke to me. Um, I could see how people had insecure attachment, meaning that they didn't have caregivers that they could really bond safely or securely with. But what I learned over time, especially at the decade of the brain, is that people in intense therapy or in really intimate healing relationships can learn these skills. That built in for me this idea that, and I I pieced it over many years, which is why I think it took me a lot of time, (laughs) is that I actually work with a psychodynamic approach. And psychodynamic simply means there's stories that we tell ourselves or there's ways that we relate in our current life to people that are a reflection to patterns that we had early on in life. And if those patterns are supportive and resourceful, those can actually strengthen the connections we have currently in our communities and with our significant others. And if they're not resources, then they're things that we need to have strengthened and work through and heal from. They're essentially traumas that people need to work through. So that is my theoretical approach. And I would say all of that in a tinier nutshell if I was working with a client starting out to let them know what kind of work I do. I write this in my disclosure statement. It's always a good practice if you're a counselor to have a disclosure statement. It is an ethical, it's not just a good practice, it's an ethical necessity that we have that to protect ourselves and to let the clients know that we're not just listening to them. We are listening, but we also have skills and education and theories that we are basing our work on. It's also essential that you share that not just on your website, but in a first session. And that's usually what I'm looking for in a first session when I'm working with somebody is they're telling me their story. I'm usually taking notes and I usually ask about the last three generations of their family and get some history. I'll ask them about their spiritual life, what their relationships look like, you know, what is it that, you know, they're hoping to work with with me. And then I usually spend some time, a couple of minutes just explaining if you and I were to work together, these are some of the methods that I might use and that I might approach with you. And what I found is that people that really want to do a lot of growth work want to do a more psychodynamic approach. Even if they don't know what that is, I think they're aware that there's things in their life that are holding them back that are related to how they interacted with their caregivers growing up, whether that's mom or dad or someone else that took care of them. That's what becomes meaningful. And it's not everything that we talk about. We end up building a relationship over time. And my hope is that when people build a relationship with a counselor, if they're working with someone that's psychodynamic or just working with someone that they feel really comfortable with that has a different theory, that they're taking those skills that they use in the counseling session and they're starting to apply them to the rest of their life. So that if they did have patterns growing up that weren't helpful or supported for them in building supportive relationships They're starting to integrate those now in their adulthood. So that's my theory, and that's my integrative theory. And I would say that took me quite some time, probably about 10 years before I really fully integrated and developed all three of the theories, even though I had 
different things I was trained in. I had family-based theories and I was teaching theories. It really took me a lot of time, a lot of hours of working with clients, lots of different clients, mostly clients that worked with, that had both substance use and mental health disorders. But over time, that's really what I came to find is that that's what I do. I'm not a cognitive behavioral therapist. I'm grateful for people that do cognitive behavioral therapy and all other kinds of therapy, but that's the therapy that works for uh, my approach and works with my clients. So of interest to me in this study that I mentioned earlier, among counselors, um, integrative is the first choice. Humanistic, which is person-centered or Rogers, like I talked about earlier, is the second choice of most counselors that were surveyed in this survey of 1,400 folks. And then the third choice is psychoanalytic, which really fits in a lot of ways. I have a little bit of CBT and mindfulness with my DBT approach with a lot of the work that I'm doing. So I guess I'm one of those run-of-the-mill therapists. <laughs> it kind of speaks to the generation of therapy that I that I was raised in. This episode is really just a, a touchstone of this is the kind of therapy that I do. If you were to come to me, I'm not taking new patients, but if you're someone that's seeking counseling, this is always a good question to ask is what kind of theory do you use? I also think it's important to ask, you know, what kind of value system do people work with? I try to be very clear that I have a social justice approach and an anti-oppression approach to working with people. Um, I also draw from a feminist perspective and that doesn't work with everybody. And that's something that works for me. And I, I always try to make that very clear so that clients that are looking for that seek me out and feel comfortable with me or might seek me out for referrals. I hope that this empowers you if you are someone learning theories to feel comfortable spending some time sitting with your theory. I'm guessing I was just a really slow study. I think I was turned off by talking about people's childhood initially, and I'm glad that I finally came around. Um, I don't think that we should talk lightly about people's childhoods. I, I think we what people do in therapy is really sacred and really intimate, and I think we have to take care to be really careful with people's earliest experiences be really compassionate with them and really gentle and teach them how to do that with themselves, especially if they didn't get that early learning early on. If you are somebody that's seeking therapy, I want you to feel comfortable asking your therapist, what kind of theory do you use? People seeking counseling, we can get too caught up in the right theory or the right person. And so even if it doesn't feel like a 100% match, sometimes going with somebody that feels like a good enough match it actually can be a pretty good therapeutic relationship. I look for about 80%, meaning, you know, maybe the theoretical approach isn't what I had hoped for, but I really like the person or they have an anti-oppression approach like I do. And so I'm going to feel really comfortable working with them. And that's usually one thing that I see. It's not always the case, but I do think in general, it is a good thing to ask when you're reaching out to a new therapist to say, hi, this is briefly what I'm coming for. This is my insurance. I want to make sure you take it. And then how do you work if I didn't see that information on your website? Although for the most part, I think people that are counselors, because they get asked those questions a lot, it's on their website. And if you can't find a theoretical approach, I would definitely ask and, and be wary of people that say, I don't have one. That was the other thing I was going to say, is that I think the the reason why people are turned off is because a lot of the theories are taught that are people that are dead white men, <laughs> and they're not really relevant anymore. It, it doesn't really feel like a relevant pathway to healing when 
somebody judges you or tells you that they're the expert of your story. I find that people, and this is why I think the humanistic approach and the humanistic movement was so fundamentally important to therapy and the counseling world. They want someone that's going to be genuine with them and ask them how they're doing and have a real relationship with them. And I think that's what the humanistic movement did is it really warmed people to the idea that relationships can be really healing. And this really flew in the face of traditional psychoanalytic work because the idea was to be aloof and remote and to not, you know, just be that blank slate. And that never felt comfortable to me. I didn't do it very well. I have a pretty expressive face, so I had to find something that allowed me to be more my open, genuine self. So that's our show. I hope wherever you are that you're taking good care of yourself and I will talk to you next time. Take care.